0: There's such a moral lens that people look at those who use substances through. And so I think if we understood more that how harm reduction works, if we understood more about what the substance does, then we start looking past the whole, oh, there's something morally wrong with you. One of the real core pieces of harm reduction is compassion. And
1: I think compassion often comes from understanding and lack of fear. We don't have to like that people use drugs. We don't have to like the behavior to still have compassionate understanding and support.
2: Welcome to episode 11 of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we will be discussing the myth that harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. In this conversation, we'll review the definitions of harm reduction. We'll talk about some of the common fears about harm reduction. We'll talk about naloxone or Narcan. We'll talk about syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs. And we will also talk about some of the facts of naloxone and syringe exchange slash distribution programs. So before we jump into the conversation, let's first have our guests introduce themselves. Heather, do you wanna start? And then we'll go to Michelle.
1: Sure. Hi, this is Heather Bush. I am the syringe exchange program coordinator at the utah department of health and i have been in that position for about three years since syringe exchange became legal but i've been at the health department for almost 20.
2: great thanks heather heather's been on our show before i'm sure you all remember she's fabulous and we are excited to hear more from her today um michelle you want to go next
0: hello my name is michelle Chapoose. i am a licensed substance use disorder counselor I'm a member of the Ute Indian Tribe, um, the Uncompahgre Band. I currently work as the Tribal Opioid Resource Center Coordinator in Roosevelt, and I'm excited to be here. You guys have heard me before, but I love this. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Michelle. Michelle is also fabulous, and we're so happy to have her on the show. So again, the myth that we are debunking today is harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. So. Heather, way back in episode one, you told us about harm reduction, and you gave us a definition then, but I think we should review the definition of harm reduction before we get any farther into this episode. So can you give us a definition of harm reduction?
1: Sure. Harm reduction, in the context of what we're talking about here, is anything that reduces the harms associated with drug use. And that could Be literally anything. Obviously, mostly what we talk about are the direct health-related harms, but it could be psychological harms, legal harms, financial harms, all of those types of things. But mostly, what we talk about are the health-related risks and harms that come um, associated with drug use, and that could be any type of drug—legal, illegal, illicit, illicit, licit—those types of things.
2: Perfect. That's so great. Thank you. First, I wanted to hear one or two sentences from each of you um, about what you think when you first hear this myth. So when you hear the myth that harm reduction practices increase crime in my community, what do you think? Michelle, do you wanna go first?
0: Sure, one of the first things I really think of when I hear hear this statement is that it's based on fear and fear is based on a lack of understanding. And so the more you understand something, it's easier for you to understand how it works. So if there's a level of education that occurs in regards to this, I think then that fear of this happening, this increase occurring, then becomes less.
2: Gosh, that's a, a profound take on this, you know, that fear comes from not understanding something why do you think people don't understand these things do you think it's because there's not education or do you think it's you know is there like bias slipping in there what do you think is at the root of that
0: i think well like we talked about in one of our prior episodes there's such a moral lens that people look at um, those who use substances through it's such a moral issue it's like oh there's something wrong with you why aren't you concerned about your family why aren't you looking at this why don't you want to stop you know there's all these these other statements that go along with it so i think people think that the lens of the the moral issue this moral decision it's like oh that you know that you're making a decision that you don't care but the reality is is there you know as we've talked about in our previous episodes is there's there's a science behind this there's a science behind what is happening there's a science behind what a substance does To the body, how it hijacks the brain and how it does it perfectly. There's all these other components to it. And so I think if we understood more that, you know, how harm reduction works, if we understood more about what the substance does, we understand more that, you know, this is not, it's not that this person is such a terrible person, you know, but there's all these other circumstances behind it. But I think if we understand that, we're more likely to be like, okay, if I know this is going to help you be safe, if I know this is going to help you find that place of recovery that you're looking for, I think we would be more likely to endorse it, to encourage it, to, you know, put it out there and, and let people know that these, these programs and these, um, you know, like the syringe exchange or even the Naloxone or Narcan are available. Because then we start looking past the whole, oh, there's something morally wrong with you. It's like, okay, we're dealing with a problem. We're dealing with an issue. What can I do to help you find the help or the support or the recovery? Whatever language you use to you know, to overcome what you're facing right now, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it totally does. Um, the episode that Michelle is referencing, well, I guess in quite a few episodes, we talk about those points, but episode five of Debunked, we specifically talk about how Substance use disorders are chronic illnesses and thus should be treated as chronic illnesses and harm reduction approaches are a great way to begin treatment for those things and to reduce the harm associated as Heather pointed out.
1: You know, I'm really struck by what Michelle said. And that's, that was my thought too, is that, you know, when I was back talking about harm reduction, I was talking about it very matter of factly what it means, but I think that that's also what happens is, is that, people kind of forget that these are people and people have needs and people have issues and we're all people and we all have strengths and weaknesses and experiences. And people often get really caught up in that legal thing. So when I point out, well harm reduction, we all practice harm reduction every day and that's been even more prevalent as we talked about in a previous episode. When we're looking at COVID, I mean, you know, washing your hands, wearing masks, social distancing—that's all harm reduction. But when you start talking about drug use, people get really caught up in the fact, but it's not legal. You're doing something that's not legal, and they just get stuck on that, and they often forget about the whole other range of issues that surround it—all the psychosocial, emotional, interpersonal uh, issues that are around drug use and. And harm reduction, for that matter, and they just get really hung up on. Well, it's it's illegal, so you should just say no because it's illegal.
2: Just because it's illegal, it seems like that almost implies like, oh, we should just dehumanize this, and you know, if someone's breaking a rule, then they're, then they're not worth it. Which I think the average person would disagree. You know, they would say no. Everyone is worth. Life is worth life. You know, and uh, shouldn't be treated lightly. So those are great points. So Heather, what do you think when you hear this myth that harm reduction practices will increase crime in my community?
1: Well, and that's part of it too, is I often think about that. I think that that's the core of where it's coming from, is that people think, well, drug users are criminals. They equate those two things. And so then they say, well, if you're helping them use drugs, which many people think that's what harm reduction is, if you're helping them use drugs, then you're helping them commit crimes. And, you know, obviously we know that the whole cycle of drug use and abuse is very complicated and involves many things. And yes, sometimes it can lead to criminal behavior, but I think that instead of looking at, well, what are ways that we can help people reduce some of those harms, including things that are putting them in legal danger, and things that are causing maybe pain to the people around them as well as themselves, that's all part of harm reduction as well. So if we help people improve their health outcomes, improve their mental health outcomes, improve their connections, that's only going to help also address maybe some of those other issues that they might have gotten themselves into
2: as you're speaking heather i'm flashing back to other moments on um this show when we've talked about issues of like legalizing drugs for example like having prescription grade heroin and it, it comes down to there's so much stigma wrapped around drug use almost perhaps as a result of it being illegal you know and that stigma and that shame is so detrimental to people i was listening to somebody today they had sent in a video in response to um to one of the questions posed on the air. And they were just telling their story about recovery and um, when they were using. And it was incredible. This person said that their drug use saved them from going to a really dark place, which I thought was so interesting because often people look at drug use as making the person go to a dark place. Perhaps in many instances, that is the case. But but yet there are probably a vast majority of people who are using these drugs to self-medicate. And in this person's uh, um, case, in particular, they had experienced some incredible trauma that was tearing them apart, and the drugs saved them until they were able to face that trauma, which I thought was so interesting and profound, you know. But because drugs are illegal, there's so much stigma around it that you know we can't even most people can't even address it in that manner.
0: We can see that there's that shame base, um, the shame that comes around the substance use. The shame that somebody you know, may use something improperly to get relief from most likely a mental or a emotional pain or trauma that they're experiencing. So when we talk about some people using substances to help them get through difficult situations, it's because it becomes a distraction. And so that distraction distracts the individual from the pain that they can't manage or get through it within that moment. And so, you know, you can just see how complex this whole, the whole issue of substance use disorders are. But then if we link it back to what our topic is about, you know, that's gonna increase um, legal, you know, people behaving badly and getting in trouble with a legal system or crime, well, if somebody is using a substance that changes the way the brain functions, the way the brain processes, some of the behaviors that we see are characteristics of certain substances. And so it's not that the person is this total criminal, but the substance that they're using has changed the way the brain is working and the way they process. So in a way, not that I'm excusing it or saying it's the same as Tylenol, <laughs> but it kind of gives us, you know, an idea that you take any substance into the body is going to change the way you process and and manage certain things and certain behaviors are amplified certain um, judgments that you have are minimized so people may be more likely to engage in illegal behavior with you know because it's the effects of the substance if that makes sense yeah yeah and and so I don't want that statement to be seen as an excuse for anybody to say oh you know it was just because of this that i did this you know it was just because i had i was under the influence that i did this or did that i mean it's more likely but there's so much more to it but i just kind of want people to look at the there's a connection between if you're under the influence of a substance, you're not going to engage or behave like you would normally do when you're not under the influence of a substance, because that's what substances do. They change the way the brain works, the way we look at situations, the way we manage. And if there's been long-term use, you know, there's some severe changes that occur within our cognitive thinking and the way we do things.
2: Yeah. And the bottom line is that oftentimes that, people start those substances as a means of self-medication. And even if they don't, you know, at, at some point, especially with opioids, it becomes, uh, people are dependent on them. And then, then we have to address a whole other issue, right?
1: I was just gonna say, I think, Along with what she was saying, I think something that makes us really uncomfortable, I don't want to get too into the weeds here on this, but I think something that makes us often really uncomfortable is talking about pleasure, and that really that is the main thing that we as humans do, right? We're seeking pleasure, and we're seeking to run from pain, so, you know, and throughout history, we, you know, even like having a really good meal, that's pleasure, spending um, time doing something you really enjoy is pleasure. And then we have sought out our entire human history chemicals that induce pleasure. I mean, even sugar <laughs> induces pleasure, right? So we tend to do that that either help us have more pleasure or have less pain. And I think that we've gotten so focused on either criminalizing, moralizing, you know, shaming someone's desire to seek pleasure or to seek removal from pain and we get so focused on that that we we forget again that that maybe people can use drugs to a point where they aren't addicted they aren't you know um turning to crime they aren't causing problems in their lives or the people around them, or it may be something really acute where they're dealing with something really intense and maybe they need an escape or whatever. We kind of tend to forget a lot of those nuances. And again, I think that's where this whole criminal thing comes in is that people jump to these huge conclusions. And as we've talked about, and I know you've talked about in all of these episodes, it's such a complex situation.
2: I really love everything you just said. I love what you guys are talking about already. Um, We need to take a quick break, but after the break, we'll talk about some of the common fears associated with harm reduction practices. Then we'll also jump into talking about two of the common harm reduction practices related to opioid use disorders. So we'll talk about Naloxone or Narcan and syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs. Um, So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Program, offering programs to address barriers of access to rural communities related to opioid use disorder. And Regent's Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah works to transform healthcare from the inside out. We reduce confusion, waste, and red tape for members as we help them navigate the healthcare system. The information on the show is so important, so relevant, and definitely information that more people need to hear. So please take a minute to rate and review the show. There's something about the algorithm. The more reviews, the more Debunked shows up in people's feeds. So rate and review. Thanks. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. Right now, we're going to talk about some of the common fears about harm reduction. And then we'll talk about two of the most common harm reduction practices um, associated with opioid use disorders. Um, so, Heather, what are some of those common fears that you hear people throw around when talking about harm reduction?
1: Well, it's interesting because I strangely have these conversations all the time. People ask what I do or find out what I do, and I end up getting in these big conversations with people. And I really enjoy that because it's those little opportunities to be able to educate somebody, maybe somebody who otherwise wouldn't have um, ever even thought about many of these things. So they have been some really cool conversations. And for the most part, it is what Michelle said at the top of this episode was a lot of it's fear and or just lack of knowledge that really jumps people into that. But I'd say some of the biggest things is that by talking to someone about ways to reduce their harm, instead of just telling them to completely remove their harm, you know, like, go all the way down to, we'll just don't use drugs. If we're talking to them about anything in between, if we're talking to them as if they have control over their own lives, and that if we give them this information, they can make decisions, that's really scary to people. I think often people want you to say, no, just don't do it, this is a bad thing, this causes problems, and as we know, that doesn't work at any place in anybody's life, yet, for some reason with drug use and often sexuality, um, we try to move all the way to that one end. So I think that's the biggest thing is people think that if you talk to people about it, talk to people and try to empower people, they think that then what you're doing is uh, condoning, even encouraging or supporting drug use. And one of the things about harm reduction is it's very neutral, right? So it, it's not condone, but it's also not condemning. We also don't condemn people for their drug use because they get that everywhere else in their life. So our job is to provide them with just that neutral information and say, you're a smart person. If we give you some additional information, resources, connection, and empowerment, then hopefully then you can make healthier choices. But it's also not up to me to tell you what that is. I'm not here to tell you what you need to do, I can tell you, these are things that are might be causing you harm. And these are some suggestions on how to reduce that harm. But they've got to find their own path out of it, just like we do with everything else in our lives. Um, But that's, that's probably the biggest thing.
2: Yeah, totally. I kept thinking while you were talking that it's the fear almost stems out of the belief that this is a black and white issue. And it's just not. It's just not. like you said, there's so much nuance, and there's such a spectrum. Um it can't be addressed in a black and white way as I think the world is figuring out about most issues, right? I don't know if there is a black and white issue in this world. You know?
1: well, and I keep thinking that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, all the things we're doing for Covid are, you know, it's all about public health and it's all about harm reduction. And I keep thinking that, hopefully this may help us in the long run, um, be able to maybe help people understand harm reduction a little bit better. I mean, there will still be the thing of, well, this is something somebody chose for themselves rather than something that was inflicted on them, which is another big myth about drug use in general, and that somehow then people deserve less support, you know, information, encouragement, those types of things, but I do hope that some of this will help people maybe have a little bit different perspective and understanding about that.
2: yeah, I do too, I do too. to your point that as kind of a uh, a side note, you know you made the point that if people you know some people might suggest that if someone uses drugs then they're not you know as deserving of treatment or things like that, and on past episodes we've had we've heard people talk about you know not being able to get great treatment in emergency rooms because they were seen as, you know, air quotes, a user or a junkie or, you know, all the other stigmatizing and detrimental titles that were given to them in those situations. But I just had the thought, what if someone was driving way too fast on the interstate, they got in an accident, would anyone ever say, oh, they don't deserve... To be treated for their wounds inflicted by that accident, you know, it's just not the case. No one would even think twice about treating them in an ER in that situation. Exactly
1: right, and I think that that again comes back to harm reduction. As people are like, well, why do you care about these people? Why would we want to spend our time, money, energy on these people who have done this to themselves? But you're exactly right. If you know people want to try to categorize and otherize, and demonize um, people who use drugs and somehow dehumanize them and not think about that, yeah, they deserve the same. Um, even saying they makes me, that sounds like I'm otherizing. But you know what I mean, that, that people who use drugs are people first.
2: I've, in fact, Heather said in episode one, people who use drugs aren't bad people. They're just people. So amen, Heather. Michelle, what are some of the fears that you hear when harm reduction comes up in conversations?
0: I think some of the biggest things I hear from a lot of community members is that it's going to, you know, of course, going to increase use. Like, everybody can use more. It's because you're saving them or saving an individual. So, like, if we look at the Narcan and the locks distribution in our communities, people feel that Narcan is going to open the doorway for people to use opioids more freely because they think it's just going to provide that safe that, you know, it's like throwing a lifesaver out to somebody who's drowning. And so because it's with a substance, they think it's going to give people free reign. The other thing is I hear that it's going to bring more people, more people who use substances into our communities. So not just the substance users that are um, currently using within our community, but bring others from outside of the community. But I think the biggest fear for community members is that people who didn't use are going to start using, and people who are already using are going to increase use.
2: Yeah, I hear those as well. Those are good points. Those are really good points. Michelle touched on, she mentioned naloxone and Narcan. So let's jump in now to talking about two common harm reduction practices associated with opioid use disorders, and that is uh, the use of Narcan or naloxone which is an overdose reversal drug, and syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs. Michelle, can you tell us what Narcan or Naloxone is, what it does, and then we'll talk a bit about Narcan parties.
0: So Naloxone is an opioid reversal drug that's been created to block the opioid receptors that are located in the body, which are located in the brain, they're located in a spinal cord. There's actually some located also in our stomachs. And so these receptors, when somebody is using an opioid, the opioid molecule will go in and attach to that receptor. And then a chemical reaction occurs. And so breathing decreases, pain, the feelings of pain or the way the body interprets that are changed. But what causes the overdose itself for people to die from too many opioids in the system is it causes their breathing to slow down and eventually stop. And so if somebody has administered um, naloxone or in the form of Narcan, which is the nasal spray, naloxone is the name that for the one that's like distributed through the syringe, that molecule will then go into the system and it is attracted to that receptor and it will literally knock the opioid off of that receptor and block it. And so the body then is no longer having the effects, the, you know, the reduced breathing, that reaction stops because the the naloxone, the molecule is now blocking that. So it's not allowing the opioid molecule to do its job. Right. And so with naloxone or narcan narcan is like i've said is the nasal spray and that's what we distribute it is such a vital tool to have I, you know and i think about it as a tool because if there you don't know who's dealing with substance use issues you don't know who somebody is accidentally overdosed or taking a large amount of an opioid we really don't know who we can't sit there and say you know someone's not walking around with the o on their foreheads indicating that they're taking an opioid but if we have the Naloxone and the Narcan with, with us or available and we know how to administer that, we could use it as a tool and that this tool saves lives. It saves, it helps people. It can be a challenge to, because there's such fear, you know, along with the issue of opioid use that sometimes people don't want to take the tool or use the Naloxone or the Narcan or have, the, you know, have it in their possession.
2: Thanks, Michelle. So where can people get naloxone?
0: So naloxone is actually available through, you can get it to your pharmacist. There is a standing order in the state of Utah. It's an open prescription. And Heather, correct me if I'm using the wrong terms, but anybody with can go to a pharmacy and ask for the naloxone. You do have to pay for it. Some, um, most insurances will cover it. That copay can range anywhere from $35 to $100. Most likely the form of naloxone you're getting, it will be in the form of a nasal spray, which is Narcan. With the Narcan pack, you will get two dosages. Um, So you can get it at any pharmacy. For those of you who are members of a federally recognized tribe and get your services through Indian Health Service, they do also have that available. You can also get it through the program that I'm currently working with. We do community in rural and tribal communities. We do trainings that will, once you sit through the training, which gives you information on how to use it, but also information on harm reduction. You will get a naloxone kit, a Narcan kit yourself to take home and for your, you know, to keep on you. So it is readily available. And I don't think people realize how readily available it is. Just as anything, we need to be able to provide that education, the different forms of naloxone where they're readily available, that it is available to anybody and that anybody can use it.
2: Yeah, definitely. And Michelle said that she conducts these trainings, the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative. Um, We we have these trainings that Michelle conducts and others on our team. So Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but if somebody wants one of these trainings in their community, they can reach out to our team and we can potentially organize that. Is that correct?
0: Certainly, even though we're dealing with some, you know, with the social distancing now with the, what we're dealing with with this COVID-19, there's, you know, we can still, you know, if you need a Narcan and Naloxone kit, well, I offer Narcan. If you need a Narcan kit, you can contact me. If we need to go over, it on, over the phone or via Zoom, I could still do that. That's how important it is, especially with what we're dealing in the stress levels that have increased because of our current situation. It's important that everybody has access to that. Most states will have a website. You can look at, look online, you can contact us and I can you know, do what we can to work with you to get those kits available to you and provide some training on how to use those.
2: Thanks, Michelle. Heather, what are some of the uh, resources through the Department of Health relating to Narcan and Naloxone?
1: Probably the best is Naloxone. Utah.gov, and it has a naloxone finder on there, including it'll tell you the pharmacies that have it and are available, which is most of them, especially most of the big ones. And it also has other links to other resources, such as Utah Naloxone, which is just Utahnaloxone.org. And then some of the other places that Michelle mentioned. It's also just got some good basic information on naloxone, how to use it, when to use it, and other overdose prevention information. So that's a great place to start. And like Michelle said, even just Googling, you can usually find quite a bit. But at least that way, I know you're getting to the right and good and accurate information for Utah.
2: Great. Thanks, Heather. So if you want to reach out to Michelle and potentially set up one of these trainings, you can message us on our social media platforms at debunked pod, and we will get you in contact with Michelle. So before we go to a break, we have to take a break in a couple minutes, but I wanted to talk a bit about, um, you know, the myth of Narcan parties. So I've heard people say that if you give out naloxone or Narcan, people are just going to have parties where they intentionally overdose and then revive each other and then, you know, rinse and repeat. So Is this true? Heather, do you have comments on this?
1: Two things. First of all, people do everything, right? People eat Tide Pods. People do all sorts of crazy stuff. So the fact that perhaps this has happened and people do this would not surprise me. But I can tell you that, and I'm sure Michelle can speak to this even more so, people who use drugs, yes, maybe they may have a little extra sense of security or false sense of security, if they have naloxone on hand, they may push things a little bit further because they're like, oh, well, I can always reverse out of it. However, most people who use drugs, they don't want to waste their high. And that's what happens when people use naloxone. So as soon as naloxone comes in, what it does is it knocks you know, the opioid the receptors and actually puts a person immediately into withdrawal which is miserable and makes them feel terrible immediately plus they've lost their high they've just wasted those drugs they've wasted that money and often people who come out of after they're revived with naloxone their first instinct is to be angry um, because they don't feel good and they know what happened they're not thinking oh you just saved my life they're thinking i just lost my high um so the fact that people would
2: I lost my high and I'm now in withdrawal. Withdrawal,
1: Many exactly. People. So the the thought that people would do that by choice and for fun is really 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 unlikely.
2: Yeah. So maybe maybe it's a possibility, but I think the vast majority of people would say that's that's crazy and they you know that's not something that's happening in their community. Okay, so we need to take a break. After the break we'll hear from Heather um, about syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs. And then we'll talk about why it's important to debunk this myth that harm reduction practices will increase crime in our communities. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu. And the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative of Utah State University, an effort to address opioid use among rural Utahns in the hopes of eliminating myths and promoting health. Information at khs.usu.edu.outreach. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. Earlier in the show we talked about the definition of harm reduction and some of the common fears about harm reduction. And we've heard now from Michelle and Heather about um, naloxone. So now we're going to talk about one of the other harm reduction practices associated with opioid use disorders and that is syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs. So Heather, can you tell us about what Syringe Exchange is and how long it's been legal in Utah, those things?
1: Sure. So Syringe Exchange has been legal in Utah since May of 2016. It's uh, four years it's been legal. We started our first exchange in December of that year. So we've been doing active exchange for three and a half years. We, um, since July of the most recent year, we've distributed about a half a million syringes. We have six current syringe, we call them syringe service providers and I'll get a little more into that in just a minute. Um, We have six right now throughout the state. Most of them are in Salt Lake City. They all have a little bit different delivery models, service models and things that they offer. But the goal of all of them is Syringe exchange is a harm reduction practice. It's a way to reach out to people where they are, using those harm reduction principles of meeting a person where they are, giving them information, giving them resources so that they can make decisions to reduce their harms associated with drug use. Syringe exchange was really developed in the early 80s in the U.S., even before that, in Europe and that was to address infectious diseases. The actual first exchanges in Europe were to address hepatitis B. um, And then in the US, it really was to address HIV in the 80s. And that's what they found is that people who were sharing syringes specifically, and you may have also heard it called needle exchange program. So who were using syringes and needles, They will find that was a really effective way to transmit blood back and forth to each other and bloodborne diseases such as HIV, hepatitis C and hepatitis B very easily transmitted amongst this population. And so they came up with this idea basically of if you give people clean syringes, that that reduces that risk of viral infections going back and forth um, those bloodborne infections but then they quickly found out the other benefits of many bacterial infections and other health risks that came from using and reusing or sharing and reusing many of these products so that's where it really started was about disease prevention but Then it started to really blossom out and to recognize, wow, this is a time when someone's coming, they're getting their syringes. It's a great time to have conversations with them, have conversations with them about other ways that they can reduce their harms. If they are interested in treatment, how can they access it? How can we support them accessing it? How can we get them information about overdose? How can we get them information about naloxone? How can we get them information about... Maybe how to apply for Medicaid, all those things that so really started blossoming. And that's why we now call them syringe service programs, because it's really so much more than about exchanging syringes. That's the core of it, but it becomes about they come in for the syringes and they stay for the services, if that makes sense. Um, it's a place that's non judgmental, that's safe, that tries to empower, again, not condone, but also not condemn their drug use and provide them with all of these resources. And where this crosses over is one of the main things and and part of our law here in Utah, is that every person at every exchange has to receive information on overdose prevention, including on where to get naloxone, but most, if not all, syringe exchange programs also distribute naloxone. So when we were talking earlier about where people can get naloxone, syringe exchange programs are also one of them. And also um, in Salt Lake City, the Salt Lake Fire Department, they also distribute naloxone. Now, they don't actively go out and give it to people. But if people walk up, if you walk up to a fireman who's obviously not busy and say, hey, do you have naloxone? If they have it on their truck, they'll give it to you. So they're really cool that way. And they're some of our strongest allies just out there in the community.
2: In episode one, Heather, you said yeah. that the syringe services really provide a space for you to show many of the clients that they're cared about and that they are people and that, you know, that you care about them, that they that they mean something and they have worth. Is that true?
1: Yeah. And that's one of I think my most favorite things <laughs> about syringe services is that it's really about building that rapport and building that sense of community. And we hear that all of our time from our providers, some of which have now been doing it for three and a half years and who are out there on a daily basis, that their clients know that they can come to them for questions, for support, for just a friendly smile and used to be hug. And that is, to me, just as important as any of the directly health related items. And as any of us can say, sometimes just somebody with a kind word is the best medicine and the best thing to help us get through and maybe encourage us to feel like, wow, if this person cares about me, if I can do this little thing, what else can I do?
2: Right, right. And it's such a beautiful thing that you guys create a shame-free, judgment-free zone, that's just invaluable. So I really commend you for the work that you do on that. I have read countless articles, uh, scientific peer-reviewed journals that cite that syringe exchange programs increase rate of treatment, they decrease infectious rates of HIV and hepatitis C, and they have all the benefits that Heather talked about. So everything Heather has mentioned is scientifically based, scientifically proven, for years, not for five years, not for 10 years, 20 years or more. Right, Heather? And I have,
1: yeah, and I might have mentioned this before, but it's one of the most intensely and thoroughly studied public health interventions of the last 30 years. And it has been studied for over 30 years. There are just mountains of information about this. Um, and and I've said this before, and I and I don't mean to sound disrespectful, but I often think, Really, the defense should be on the other side. People should be, I I need data on why people think that it is a problem. Because sure, there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be anecdotal data. But nobody can bring to me something that says that it increases crime, it increases drug use, it increases these problems because it just doesn't. The CDC actually put together a really great whole bunch of pages on their website it's just cdc.gov slash ssp for syringe service programs just lots of information about all these studies and you know one of the biggest things back to the theme of this um, podcast is that they've done so many studies that it does not increase crime in fact it often reduces it in areas where syringe services are that was actually one of our um biggest criticisms when we first started exchange because they started it down on Rio Grande near the shelter where there was a lot of people using and buying and selling drugs. So you go where the people are, but a lot of people said to us, oh no, people go there because there's syringe exchange instead of that syringe exchange is there because that's where the drug users are. So we hear things like that all the time and and that's fine. But what we know is that, you know, if you go where the people are, you're able to provide them with these services that as a whole, like you said, HIV and hepatitis C infections go down, crime goes down, accidental needle sticks go down, overdoses go down, all those things. And yes, they don't go to zero, They don't even go in huge leaps and bounds, but they also do not increase. And that's ultimately the goal of really any public health intervention is to try to, at the very least, make people's lives somewhat better.
2: It's a goal to flatten the curve. I mean, almost everyone is familiar (laughs) with that term now, right? Exactly right. Common public health term, flatten the curve. So Heather pointed out, a major myth with syringe exchange and that is that if you have a syringe exchange it's going to increase crime in a community which is you know like the topic of this episode today and as heather pointed out that's just false it's false by 30 years of data it is false it's just a myth and we need to treat it that way so i'm I'm really grateful for everything you said heather so why do you all think it's important to debunk this myth in our communities
0: i think it's really important to Debunk this myth and really challenge people's beliefs on the different methods and the different ways that are available for people to get the help that they need when they're dealing with a substance. This is one of the many ways. You know, we talked about working with substance issues on a spectrum. You know, we can't do a dichotomous model or a black and white model because the black and white model does not work. There's been research, and we there's tons of research. Showing how, you know, we talk about the connection. We talk about, it's not about condoning, but it's about caring. It's about um, letting somebody know that they are more than the substance that they've been defined by. And so we need to break these myths because, you know, you hear something enough, you're going to start believing it enough. And you're going to start thinking, okay, this is all I am. This is who I, this is what I do. This is how it works and in a way it perpetuates these misconceptions and the stigma and the shame that comes along with that you know that lens that people are put in to look at people who are dealing with substance uses through and you know what does that really benefit it benefit it makes it may make the person who believes it feel safe or feel okay you know the whole not in my house not in my backyard not in my neighborhood but the reality is is there? it is such a complex, substance use is such a complex thing that we can't say it's not gonna happen to me. We can't say it's not gonna happen in my family. But if we really look at this and see that once we start breaking through those beliefs and those misconceptions, we are opening up a door for more care, for more compassion. And like Heather talked about connection, which is so key, more connection for people who are struggling with whatever issue that led them to use their substance to find the help that they need because everybody deserves and everybody is worth finding that healing that they need to become who it is they choose to be. It's about autonomy, right? They've got to be able to know that that there are ways for them to find the help that they need, but there is not one way that is the only way. There's many ways.
2: Thanks, Michelle. That's great. Heather, why do you think it's important to debunk this myth in our communities?
1: I think a lot of it's about if we start debunking this myth, start understanding that not all drug users are criminals, even if they're using an illegal drug, that they are friends and families and neighbors, but also sends this larger message, the sense of community and belonging and all of those things that are so important to all of us. And again, we've learned so much about that over the past few months, how important it is to feel connected to our community. And when we're embraced by community, including law enforcement, There, our law enforcement's been great here, actually, in Utah. We've had you know, a few bumps in the road just as people are figuring it out. But for the most part, especially SLPD has been awesome in calling us out if there's been issues, but also just being in really supportive and understanding of syringe exchange and how it benefits the community. And when it's really embraced by the community and not shown in fear and pushed away and otherized and criminalized, that then people who use drugs that in itself also starts improving the lives of everybody because they are part of our community. And as if we can include them and make them feel welcome, that's going to help all of us.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful, thank you. So on this show, we talk a lot about how harm reduction is all about being compassionate and loving. So what do you think the world would look like if more people practiced harm reduction? Michelle, you want to comment on this first, and then we'll let Heather have the last word
0: Wow, I think that would be beautiful there's I don't think there is really any any other word that could that could truly sum it all up because how amazing would that be because not only is it would it affect substance use but it would affect other things people with depression, people dealing with anxiety, trauma can you imagine if there was if people we're so open to help instead of judge. You know, I'm not saying everybody judges, but there's always a part there's always partial judgment that comes along. But could you imagine how what a beautiful thing that would be for everybody.
2: It's hard it's it's sort of hard to imagine but it, because it's so beautiful, it's so ideal. Um Heather, what do you think the world would look like if more people practiced harm reduction?
1: I agree with the beautiful thing. That's kind of where my mind went immediately as well. I was like, "Oh, that'd be so beautiful," um, but I really made me think too that one of the real core pieces of harm reduction is compassion, and you know, certainly our world could use more compassion. And I think compassion often comes from understanding and lack of fear. And I think that Michelle would agree with me that we don't have to move to a place of acceptance or liking. Like we don't have to like that people use drugs. We don't have to like the behavior to still have compassion and understanding and support for people who. And so the concept of harm reduction, like I said, it permeates every part of our lives. And if we really were to to have this idea of harm reduction is about compassion, it's about taking care of the, each other it's about doing little things maybe making little compromises little sacrifices and challenging ourselves to think about how could we maybe bend a little bit to help each other and that ain't nothing but a beautiful thing
2: the debunk podcast is made possible by our members and the emma eccles jones college of education and human services Committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research. Offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us today on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light and today we debunk the myth that harm reduction practices increase crime and drug use in my community. Join us for episode 12 on December 9th, where we will be debunking the myth, only people who use opioids are at risk of overdose. Today, we reviewed the definition of harm reduction. We talked about some of the common fears about harm reduction. We talked about two common harm reduction practices related to opioid use disorders, namely NARCAN or NALARCAN lock zone and syringe exchange or syringe distribution programs, or also called syringe services programs. And we talked about why it's important to debunk this myth in our communities. You can find the links to the resources mentioned in this episode on our social media platforms at DebunkedPod. Speaking of social media, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at DebunkedPod. or on our website at bit.ly forward slash debunked pod. Don't forget to tell all your friends about debunked and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app. Spotify, UPR.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and Region's Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Moritz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevadel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Chapoose, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Lloyd Arrive, Hilary Deesh, Jennifer Petras, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Nick Porth, Shalane Smith-Needham, and Fred Weller, with Nick Porth serving as lead producer. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porth. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning-Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevadel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member.